like to talk a little bit about the self-education of the yogi. Each one of you is a yogi now. I don't know if you want to be, but we'll give you a little certificate that certifies that you're a yogi. One meaning of the word yoga is skill in action. It's one of the main meanings of yoga, is skill in action. In fact, that's what's happening now. We'll all be piling into cars, or you will be. I'll be staying here. And going, in quotes, out there. Um, What I would like to do is present a few remarks about ways of bringing the practice from here to there, ways of using it creatively for yourself, ways of re-educating yourself using this approach. In ancient India, there was a, a king who was also a great yogi. So in addition to ruling an empire, or really a a small kingdom. He was also an adept at spiritual work. And a young aspiring yogi came to him and said, uh, was quite impressed with how this person was able to direct the kingdom, be married, have a family, run all this stuff, and also be a highly developed spiritual being. And he requested teaching. He said, could you teach me how you do this? I'm quite impressed with how you do, what you're doing. So the king <clears throat> told him to fill up a, a pot with some hot fluid and to put it on his head to balance it and to go through each and every room in the palace and to not spill anything which takes quite a bit of attention. So this aspiring yogi did that. A while later he came back with the pot intact on his head, nothing had been spilled. Very happy and proud of himself and reported that he had done this. So then the king said, well, what did you learn about what's going on in the palace? You were in every room. And he said, well, what? I didn't learn anything. I mean, I was just paying attention to the pot. I didn't want to spill anything. He said, well, you think that's yoga? He said, now go back through the palace to each and every room without spilling anything from that pot, but noticing absolutely everything that's going on and give me a full account when you get back. That's yoga. In a way, what we've been doing is the first part here. In a way, it's not... because. Life is really wherever you go. I mean, daily life is everywhere. You get up in the morning, you wash up, etc. Even here we do that. But in a sense, we've had a very protected environment uh, with a lot of encouragement and food that facilitates what we're doing, etc. And so we've been balancing that pot. And now we have to go out and go back to work situations, family life, studenthood, etc. And I guess what I'm speaking to mostly are uh, a good many of you who don't have communities, let's say, 
uh, Vipassana communities to go to, or teachers, or even small groups of friends who sit this way, but you will be relatively isolated. It's a very common situation. But most of us don't stay here forever, or stay at a monastery forever. And a major thrust of this practice is self-reliance and is re-educating ourselves. I mean, certainly it's not to set the world's record of following the breath. That's not what it's about. It really has to do with evaluating, scrutinizing our life and seeing where there are limitations, blockages, and lacks of fulfillment, bondage, pain, suffering, and releasing ourselves from that. So in a sense, one application of this practice when you go home might be, it's really up to you, to scrutinize your life. Maybe you've been doing some some of that here, sitting on the cushion, your life has a way of floating in front of you. But what I mean is, from moment to moment, you're going from one situation to another in your life, work situation, family, etc. And the meditative way, at least this form of meditation, is to bring awareness with a willingness to learn into everything that we do. Now, it can be a very exciting adventure, if that's what you want. It means being really fresh, asking questions that perhaps we wouldn't ask if we were sophisticated. It's a bit like children. I mean, the kind of meditative inquiry. If you notice with children, I've learned a lot from my friends' children, are able to ask questions, that is, they don't understand something, and they're not the least bit ashamed of the fact that they don't understand. They haven't learned that yet. They haven't been punished. They just thought, what is that? I mean, I don't understand that. Or what's this? Or how do you do that? And there's no shame at all. I think it's remarkable, wonderful. Somewhere along the line, we lose that. And we have all kinds of problems about asking questions and admitting we don't know and finding how to do this and that. If we don't bring a real fresh awareness to our life, there's not going to be any radical change. We'll just ask certain strategic limited questions which keep us within the fold of security. And there won't be real satisfaction because nothing will really have changed. Now, I don't know if this is what you want, but the practice allows for that. Again, at your own pace, it's a gradual, there's one book about this practice, I think a very nice title, A Gradual Awakening. Each person is moving at their own pace, learning what they have to learn, from where they have to learn it. Okay, so how does that happen? How do we re-educate ourselves? Remember now, it's what's being asked is no dependence on a teacher or reading something in the book and believing that that's, that's correct. This has to be firsthand, or it won't really matter. It won't revitalize us. And the learning that I'm talking about is not the accumulation of information, which we already have been doing for a long time. It's non-accumulative. It's not the kind of learning that you put into a, a loose-leaf book or you know, a spiral notebook, because it's something that's 
often, very often, learned in the moment and then its value is over. Or as you're seeing what correct action is in that moment by being sensitive to the actuality of that moment. And so that helps our action be more skillful, more yogic. But then if you harden it into a principle or a formula or a recipe and then try to mechanically apply it to the next situation, it may not work because the next situation calls forth for something else. So there's intelligence that's available to us in the situations if we're open enough to hear it. And in order to hear it, we have to hear ourselves so that we're a fit instrument to register what the universe is teaching. I better cover a few very practical things um, because I know many of you are beginners and I want to make sure that there's enough time to cover some of these. Assuming that you're drawn to this practice, that you find an affinity exists between you and, and this life of awareness, paying attention to what's happening from moment to moment. When you get home, you don't have the support of this community anymore. But if the only time we can meditate is in a community or in a special place, that's a rather limited thing. It's like being a hothouse plant. It's only under certain specified conditions can I have some peace. Can there be some clarity and, and learning? That's rather limited. And I don't think that this practice is designed for that. And go back to the original quote that was handed out Friday evening. It's meant to be done in all postures, wherever we are. It's a comprehensive approach. It's a way of life. It isn't just a narrow technique, even though some techniques are used. Okay, so step number one would be to establish a sitting practice for yourself. You're alone now. I'm making up this hypothetical yogi, but I have a hunch it probably fits many, if not all of us. finding some time and place. People very often ask, well, how long should I sit? I haven't the slightest idea. You know, I could say 20 minutes, the way it's said in TM. One hour. An hour of silence. I mean, I don't know. For one person, an hour is uh, an eternity. And there won't be very much alertness or freshness. You're just kind of sticking it out, surviving. And for another person, an hour is just getting warmed up. But if you can set aside a certain amount of time, at least once or ideally twice a day, to just sit in silence, just to be with yourself. Before the day begins is, of course, one good time, and at the end of the day is another good time. And if you can get that rhythm going and protect it. And here I think it's very important to understand that The world, as is presently constituted, is not set up to help you with your meditation practice. In fact, sometimes it looks like it was designed by a lunatic. But it clearly is not set up to help you be mindful in all the things that we've been talking about. And so if you don't establish a rhythm and protect it, for example, in my own case, for many years, I've tried to protect certain hours in the morning for myself. Because living in Cambridge, I know how easily it is to get just swept away. Before you know it, weeks, months, years are gone. 
oh, let's go here, let's do this, etc. Okay, I, so I've needed that. I've put a little fence around a certain chunk of time. And as my practice has gotten a little bit more stable, I've been able to be more flexible, flexible about that fence and not mind if I have to you know, leave it for a few days here or a day there, etc. So if you can get a rhythm going, and here I think regularity is more important than doing it sporadically, just you know, sitting once for three hours and then miss not sitting for four or five days. And even if it's five minutes, say it's a very, very busy day and you literally have no time, probably you can find five minutes in the morning of very high quality, just really sitting there. Because it's in those five minutes, it's not simply a quantitative thing. It's not simply what you can learn in five minutes or how calm you can become in five minutes. But there's a message. You're reminding yourself, you're beginning the day by reminding yourself to be aware of your life as you live it. And so then when you leave the house, perhaps there's a greater likelihood that it will follow you into all the activities. Life itself will challenge us and provide us with enough rich situations so that we can re-educate ourselves. If we pay attention, we'll begin to see what works and what doesn't work. Some of it is really as direct and simple as that. Or as life keeps having an impact, we keep reacting. Those reactions are information. They keep telling us something about ourselves. Whether it's a reaction to a person or to nature, or to seeing everything changing, And if there's sensitivity to our reactions, then we can literally learn from life. That is, perhaps you've all heard that life is the great teacher. And it's one of the biggest cliches in spiritual circles, as far as I can tell. Meditation, awareness all the time, wherever I am. I'm into action meditation, man. It sounds good, but unless you really form a resolve, form an intention to be open to whatever life gives you, whatever comes your way, which produces a reaction in you. You come in the presence of a person. Something happens. You like them. You don't like them. You're indifferent. That's something. Moving with that reaction, being sensitive to it as it happens, whether it's an exchange, giving a person 25 cents and receiving a newspaper in return, or an intimate relationship. We get irritated with certain things. We gravitate towards other things. And so this learning about ourselves, this self-knowledge, is, not, is a very active thing. It's dynamic. It comes about through our relationship to people, to the environment, to ourselves. Okay, from this point of view, the curriculum is quite rich. And although probably for most of us exams are over, thank God, I know there are a few of you who still are still at it. But learning isn't over. You know, I mean, the classes and the degrees and all that, maybe that's over for most of us. But not learning. And that's what makes this practice joyful. At least it has for me, and I know for others. 
This is not a guru-centered approach, Vipassana meditation. The job of the teacher is to encourage you to investigate, inquire, and learn about your own life. Granted, there's a time to help and support, perhaps provide a few techniques and forms like this so that we can grow strong. But ultimately, it's to help you understand that you are the only one who can really help yourself. And that you are the only one, each one of us, that can give ourselves any real dignity. No matter how much we get confirmed by friends and lovers and everyone, teachers, therapists, if you don't dig it out of yourself, and the digging includes looking at a lot of what we've been looking at, no genuine self-respect is possible, as far as I can tell. Okay, so the lessons the universe is constantly teaching And the question is, where are the students? And it's a challenge to each one of us. Do we remain alert and sensitive to our life as we live it? Then challenges become positive. They're not obstacles. They're occasions for learning. The more extreme the challenge, the deeper you can go. Captive energies are released. If it's upsetting, fine, it's upsetting. If you're willing to learn from, from the upset, then it's, it's positive. If you just see it as a setback and negative and either condemn others or yourself, then that's where we, all, where we start. So the practice is offering a way out of suffering. But the way out is not to avoid what's happening, but to face it. In a sense, the whole practice is face it whatever it is. I'd like to connect a very basic principle which we haven't had time to make much use of in the weekend with uh, our practical living because it's central to insight meditation. One of the main meanings of insight meditation or vipassana is insight into the impermanence of reality. It means seeing things as they are, but it turns out that when we do see things as they are, they're changing all the time. Now this has been true in the to- at the time of the Buddha, it's true now. And the universe is the great master, constantly teaching that. Everything is changing, and then the question is, are we getting it? Now this can be left as some kind of wonderful, abstract, profound, philosophic notion or you can see that it can be translated into our daily life in a very important way. And particularly, I feel, in our time period, this historical period, this sensitivity to change that's so important in Vipassana practice can be a tremendous help for all of us. We happen to be living at a time where enormous change is going on, where institutions are being torn to shreds, Everything is changing. Countries, attitudes, values, the very life of the planet itself is at stake. Cultural values that have been around for centuries have been discredited. Major religions are... It's it's unclear as to how much longer they'll have any influence, any religious influence. 
politics, economics, etc. So things are changing dramatically. When we sit in our practice and we notice all the coming and going, in-breath, out-breath, thought coming, now the thought's gone, feeling here, now it's gone, pain in the knee, no more pain in the knee, now it's in the ear. All of that, if you notice, and there's a lot. Of, so we're, we're practicing being with that movement. Our attention is moving with life, which is moving. And we have this little laboratory, namely ourselves, which we've been practicing in all weekend. And now when we leave here, we have a chance to put it into action. Because now wherever we go, that same thing is going on. Situations are, don't turn out to be what you want them to be. And, you know, you want a picnic, but it rains. And this practice can really heighten your sensitivity to the way things are, that things really are changing. It's a law. And it doesn't look like it's going to be repealed, at least not in our life. And so it seems to be an act of intelligence and common sense to attune ourselves to something that we seem to have no control over. None whatsoever. An example, just a, or an image, to perhaps help, help us understand. There's a certain kind of music playing. You're dancing to it. And you're totally in tune with it. And you're in tune with your partner, who's also in tune with the music. It's a wonderful feeling. The body is moving and it's effortless. And it's a feeling of release and freedom and expression. All that has to happen is for someone to change that. The song ends, so the music ends. Or it could even be the same music, but a different orchestration. If you keep dancing the same way, it won't be fun anymore. I mean, why aren't I enjoying myself? It's still music. Yeah, but it's not the same tune. And so we have to then shift a little. It's a slight movement. Maybe the body goes a little bit differently, pacing, etc. And then it's okay again. Um, In this practice, you hear a lot about attachment, non-attachment, detachment. I'd like to give you a version of non-attachment, which has helped me a lot, and I hope that it helps you. It is meant shifting slightly from some of the emphasis in our teaching that has come from the Orient here. Much of what we have learned, much of classical Vipassana has been protected and kept, cultivated, by a monastic order. It may be the oldest unbroken monastic order in the face of the earth, the Theravadan order. That means people who have been living in monks, in monasteries, monks and nuns, living a very specialized life, perhaps a very beautiful life, have colored this practice. In other words, the basic principle I feel is universal, but there are certain colorations to the applications. And certain strategies have been made, choices to help a person free themselves. One has been a recognition that energies having to do with sex, perhaps relationship, work, food, are so powerful that we have to be afraid of them. We have to, I mean, it's a healthy respect. It's not aversion. It's 
in a way, an act of intelligence. My goodness, most people seem to be destroyed by sex or money or power, etc. And so the solution has been, we'll keep away from it. We'll be celibate. We won't work. We'll eat one or two meals a day and so forth. You see that, and I'm, I'm not condemning this. This has proven to be a useful strategy for certain kinds of people under certain conditions. But now the teaching has been brought over here, and for some reason, who, only, who knows why, the dominant energy is in the hands of lay people. Most people who want to do this on a it's real fervor. I mean, you're not going to find a huge number of monks and nuns who want to do what you did this weekend anywhere in the world. And so the energy is among lay people. And the teaching has a bit of a monastic coloration, which is a kind of a stay away. There's another way of looking at non-attachment, and which I would suggest is very useful for us as lay people. I don't know all of you, but most of us are. And that is that the problem isn't in the objects of whether it's sex or food or relationship or whatever you want to talk about, money, but how we relate to to those objects. And so a life of non-attachment means it's a life where you can you can eat. If you want to have, you can have three meals a day, it's okay. And you can make love. And you can even have a nice wardrobe if you want. And a car. You tell me, what do you want, you know, what do we want? That is not necessarily unspiritual. Nor is not having those things spiritual. Walking slow is not necessarily spiritual. Walking fast is not, not spiritual. So it, it's all in the relationship to it. It seems to amount to this. Can we learn to, let's say life is good to you and you find yourself with wonderful companions, good food, etc. Can we enjoy that? It's here, we have it, good, we enjoy it. The suffering doesn't come in then. The suffering comes in when perhaps it's taken away. Or perhaps we have a memory of something very nice and then we want to repeat it, we want to capture it. Butterfly net, get it and hold on to it. And so, I think the issue is can we enjoy these things of the world when we have them? And when we don't have them, can we, can we be strong enough to do without? No big deal. Do you see the difference? It's very liberating because it enables you to, to be who you are and to to live and to use whatever you're doing. It's a very hard path, by the way. It's not easy to, to, let's say, just eat. And when the meal is over, finished. Just make love, finished. But instead, the mind carries it. And that's where the problems come in. So I feel that's another subtle change. We have to re-educate ourselves. On the one hand, perhaps the extremes, for many of us, I think it seems like an extreme, of asceticism, like celibacy, etc., and the other extreme of overindulgence, which maybe most of the society is involved in, with a lot of pain, disappointment, is there some way of moving between those extremes where we use the things of the world, in fact, appreciate them, appreciate their beauty, and when we have them, the blessing that we have them, and yet are not controlled by them, 
it's a practice. It's not going to be handed to us. We have to learn how to do it. If you're in a relationship, the two people have to learn how to not put possessive trips on each other, how to not manipulate each other with dependency. In order for that to happen, I think it means that people have to understand the pain that those, that those ways of living bring. In other words, not doing it as it should, but coming out of your experience. You've seen that possessiveness is painful, that it doesn't work. Perhaps learning to give the other person more freedom, learning that that, that doesn't mean you don't love them, and vice versa, back. So we have a lot of challenges facing us from moment to moment. And our equipment is this awareness. That's the main tool. Each of us has the capacity to remain awake in the midst of everything that's happening to us. You know, however this universe got designed, that's, it seems true. And awareness has this, seems to have as one of its main functions, the ability to set things right. Maybe that's its job, one of its main jobs, is to set things right. But we have to use it. We have to develop it and use it. And that's why sometimes this practice is called the practice of recollection. Because the instructions are really simple. You know, pay attention. But it's remembering to do it. Remembering, forgetting, and remembering, forgetting. Okay. Bringing it now into um, some things that have been proven to be helpful for myself and some of the people in uh, in the Cambridge community. You don't have IMS, let's say now. I'm assuming that you value it here. You're somewhere, I don't know where you're going to. So we have a sitting practice, that's good. Maybe twice a day. It doesn't mean that you can, from time to time, draw upon a teacher or a book. But ultimately, it's realizing that you are taking responsibility for the quality of your life. And that we have the tool to help us in its awareness, this capacity, which can be endlessly refined. How to help that along? A few sort of, they're not exactly techniques, but sort of. Self-retreats. Some people have found it tremendously beneficial to create a kind of miniature IMS in your own home. It can be for four or five hours or it can be for a weekend. The time is, you know, it could be longer, where you set up your own, your own little insight meditation society. And a number of us have, been, have done that and found it to be very, very helpful. A few hints, if, you, if you're interested in doing things of this sort. Let's say you set aside a few days. You have two or three days with no requirements. You're not required to do anything in the world. Stop reading. Perhaps... Don't answer the phone. Let your friends know that you're going to be out of it for a while. Have enough food. Set up a little schedule for yourself. 
For most of us, that's necessary. And what I would suggest from experience is that you start off modestly with not a huge amount of sitting, some sitting, some walking. Go outside a bit, take a walk, and then as the days unfold, perhaps extend the length of the sitting, extend the, extend the length of the walking gradually. As that becomes easier to do and you become better at it, become more at home with it, and this may be during one retreat or it may evolve over a number of, of these self-retreats at home, you may want to dispense with the schedule and just do it spontaneously. Sometimes perhaps you'll sit for two hours and sometimes for 15 minutes. Perhaps do some yoga, do some walking meditation and just you'll know what to do. You'll know what you need. But to begin with, most people have found that the schedule is helpful and make it graded, you know, sort of being realistic about it. Um, it can be for three or four hours. One friend that I have knew that every Friday from one until six was not much going on and so made a rhythm out of that and it proved to be quite helpful. Another thing you can do if life isn't enough for us is a kind of uh, controlled challenges, sort of experiments with life. Where we we appraise ourselves and we have certain limitations, certain weaknesses, areas where we've been damaged. And we intentionally seek out those situations which would push our buttons and which would rub it up against, rub us up against that apprehension. And I'll give you a concrete example, which may seem very modest and maybe from one point of view not that significant, but to the person involved, having been there when it happened, was quite significant. This is a, a person about 60 years old, very shy, had never been able to go to parties that were beyond, let's say, 10 or 15 people because she needed to know everyone at the party. Okay, one time what she decided to do after having practiced for a while, she was invited to a party and it was a large party, which means she would not know most people there. She saw her first reaction was pulling back fear, making up all kinds of reasons why she didn't want to go. But then she decided to use it, as, to take it as training, which is what I'm suggesting. You, you, in a way, work with life. And so she went to the party knowing full well that it was going to produce a lot of anxiety and fear. So it's done consciously, knowing it and welcoming it. In other words, it's a teaching situation. Oh, good, I'm going to take a course on anxiety tonight. Mine. The difference is that the person is willingly intentionally putting themselves in the situation for purposes of freeing themselves from it. It's not an exercise in masochism. And so this person was able to, over the course of the evening, definitely fear was experienced. It was such an incredible triumph for her to last out the evening and to feel free and to enjoy people and food and so forth. Now, so it's not a small thing for that person. And each one of us, we have all these areas where we're blocked. 
you don't have to bite off too much, just maybe a little bit more than you normally would want. And work skillfully with those situations. Another person <clears throat> was very frightened of crowds. And this person was really frightened, so much so that I had to accompany him during this first attempt. We went to Park Street Station, which is, for those of you who don't know Boston, at five o'clock rush hour time. Okay, the person knew that that's exactly the situation that is awful for them. Now, all I was was at one end of the car. Okay, entering the car at exactly the worst time, but doing it intentionally, realizing that this is going to produce certain reactions, but now I have awareness. This person had practiced for a while. And in a sense, welcoming those, those fear response or revulsion or claustrophobia, welcoming them. Because unless we say hello, we can't say goodbye. We want to skip that step. We all want to say goodbye to all this nonsense. Pain and shyness and anger and all the rest of it. But can we, realistically? So, we find this situation which gives you a real big hello. And the report, you know, of sweat breaking out, palpitations. But staying right there in the train, you know, and experiencing what it's like to be crowded and how awful it feels for you, and going through it, taking it as a training. Can you see how it's unlimited? The, the, create, the potential, creative potential is unlimited. Now, you don't need these special situations because life itself you know, just keeps doing it. But we have ways of not learning from what's happening to us because we protect ourselves or avoid or intellectualize. Okay, I didn't mention a sitting group because if you can find a group of like-minded people, wonderful, you should do it. Sit with people, even if it's one person. Meet once a week and, and sit together. Something very beautiful in that. Perhaps you've learned that during the weekend. It's not only a support group, which sounds a little to me limited, you know, like a crutch. It's a form of communion. It can be, you know, where you're even though you're in silence, something goes on between people when they sit together and they work with their stuff all in the same room. I mean, do you have a feeling from that for even just a weekend? Picture if it got to be longer, where even if there's no talking, you know each person is directly working with their existence and their limitations. And we're all together and we're also alone at the same time. Just a few uh, quick remarks about relationship and work because some people have asked about it. First, relationship. I'm not an authority on relationship. And I'm not going to now give you still another theory, the Vipassana theory of how to have a good relationship. The market is flooded with all these books as to how to have a good relationship and how to be a great lover and all the rest of it. Perhaps in a way, the unique thing that Vipassana does have to offer, or if you don't think of it, if Vipassana is foreboding, awareness, you know, sensitivity, is that it's suggesting before you start looking for theories or practices as to how to have a good relationship, 
Maybe there's some good old common sense in simply finding out, if you're in a relationship, just what your relationship is. Or just start to notice, okay, I'm in, my, I'm in a relationship with someone. And instead of spending so much time with this new psychologist theory and that spiritual theory and all the solutions to how ideally couples should be together, maybe step number one is, the foundation is, what is? Just how are we actually when we're together? What goes on? What is the quality of feelings, the communication? In a very open way, non-judgmental, just exploring. What can come out of that kind of open-mindedness and that childlike willingness to ask questions, and it takes a lot of courage, is a kind of a new austerity for, for lay people. You know, the old yogis who did vipassana, some of them did extraordinary things to enhance their, their learning. Like, uh, if you thought you had some difficulty with the walking meditation, there were groups in Thailand who would do the walking meditation at the edge of the jungle, where there'd be lions and tigers, you know. And if there's no fear, the lions and tigers would leave you alone. But if there's fear, trouble, big trouble. And so here you're doing this lifting, moving, place, slow walking. And the whole challenge is, can you just really just do the walking? Because if you do the walking, you're safe. But if you blow it for a moment, who knows? And that was part of their practice. It's an austerity to develop real mindfulness. So they're putting their life on the line. Or one meal a day, or sleep never lying down, even sleeping sitting up. Now, maybe none of that is too appealing to us. But not only is it not appealing, it's not relevant. In other words, our jungle is relationship. In other words, we don't have to worry about lions and tigers. It's that we're eating each other. Our jungle is the jobs that we're in. And so we need a new austerity. Just take relationship itself. Uh, I know from a man's point of view how hard it is for men to learn to be honest and open about, let's say, making love. Preferences, um, apprehension, all kinds of things for both people to be honest, let's say. But for men to admit weaknesses and softness and things of this sort, to cry, well, you all know there's a change coming in now. That's hard work. And for a relationship to do it, to me that's easily as, as demanding and ascetic and austere as walking in front of the lions and tigers. Whereas right now in our society, men and women are trying to learn, at least some are, trying to learn how to live as equals how to respect each other after centuries of abuse and disrespect. And we've all suffered from it. It's not just women. In other words, the men have been made into caricatures of something as a result. Okay, so the part of the self-re-education requires talking about things that we don't want to talk about, asking questions about areas that we don't want to question, and doing it with another people, another person, admitting fears that... Do you see what I'm getting at? So rather than going through all the details, so a life of awareness includes that. It helps if the other person wants to do it with you. In terms of work, uh, one person here, you're interested in right livelihood, which uh, is very important since we all, most of us have to work. We spend some time each day. 
And right livelihood in the Buddha's approach is work that basically contributes to the welfare of the human race. In other words, it's compassionate. It doesn't add to the suffering that already exists. Okay, very briefly, if you can find work that you love to do and that is an asset that is service to the other beings on this planet, wonderful, you're lucky, then do it, you know, whatever it takes. Then there's really no, pro- no problem. It's right livelihood, even if it's hard work or maybe many hours of study are needed to do it or whatever. But many of us, either for short periods of time or perhaps for the rest of our life, find ourselves in work that isn't exactly what we want. And that's a fact. And perhaps there's not a way out of it. Maybe we have to support some people or whatever. Then the practice it can be very, very helpful. Because one thing that's possible is sort of making over that job from within. Step number one, of course, is for you to get comfortable if it's true that you have to be at this job for the next six months or six years, and it's not exactly what you want, if you're going to spend those six months endlessly complaining and fantasizing, that only makes it worse. So then the question is, can we spiritualize it? See, most of the forms, are not, perhaps many forms, are not out there just right livelihood and waiting for it. So that what we have to do is perhaps, it's a kind of silent subversion. It's not really subversion because you're actually improving the conditions of where you work by being human. And there are a number of cases which I've seen which have been very dramatic. Um, The occupations that I know the most about are waiter, waitress, and taxicab driver because this is Cambridge, Harvard Square. And these are all, of course, people who are really poets, writers, ballet dancers who are temporarily doing this, you know, waiting and waitressing. Mind you, I'm not really a waiter or a waitress. That's just until I get my first book published. But anyway, many, many people are doing that kind of work, somewhat condescending or bitter or feeling that they're too good for it or uh, spending a lot of time criticizing how people are who come to eat. If you take a Dharma perspective on it and look at it with a certain freshness, eating is a time when People might be lonely or they're coming together to be really convivial. It's a wonderful spiritual opportunity to serve, to give people food. If you get caught up in the status hierarchy of the society, of course you're in big trouble. But that isn't necessarily the way that we have to live. And a number of people have been able to see that and to realize that, hmm, I'm going to be waiting or waitressing for a while now and been able to extract some of the potential in that particular job so that it's not a drain anymore, that it's really Dharma work, meditative work, and they've learned a lot about themselves. That's just one example. Um, Anyone have any questions, anything that has not been covered about, specifically about going home and the continuity of this practice? Information about retreats and groups, you can look at that at five o'clock. There'll be stuff waiting for you in the dining room. Anything that that I didn't cover that maybe you need to know about? Sure. I have a comment. Sure. Which is that rather than resolve not to answer the phone, it's much easier to 
Good point. Or get an answering service, you know, where they don't know that you're there. And, you know, you can decide who to listen to. No, okay, anything that helps. Then again, see, if you, you can learn the other way too. Uh, when you don't answer the phone, sometimes people have a hard time with that. Oh, what am I missing? And you'll see the greedy mind go into effect. <laughs> this is that job I've been waiting for. This is that man or woman that I've been waiting to call me. But yours sounds more practical. Anyone else have any questions about bringing this into a a setting that isn't set up for meditation? Oh, sure. It has to do with your suggestion of doing practice um, at least hopefully once in a day. Having made many trips back and forth between here and the outside world, I find that the first thing to go is my equilibrium. And it seems so important to do what you suggested just as a means of regaining sense of equilibrium, because if I don't do that, uh, I get lost the outside world, the stimuli is so powerful for me, and so I just want to support what you said as, with that as an additional function. I hear you loud and clear. (laughs) You're right, I mean, I don't want to make it heavy, but it's really, it's not a luxury item, you know, to sit. It's not the sitting, it's that you're paying attention to your life, you know, the quality of your life, and you're doing it a few times each day. It's, I don't know, for me, it's certainly not a luxury item, it's survival. It's very important. Now, you have to feel that. Not as a should, but because you've seen it. Now, maybe you haven't been doing this long enough, so grow at your own rate. If you've just started, and you hear all these people tell you how wonderful Vipassana is, but all you know is bum knees and a lower back and all these vegetables that you have to eat. Uh, it may take you a while to, to really find out that it's not Vipassana, it's, the, it's wisdom. It's the greater understanding of what the significance of being alive is in every manifestation. And we found, many of us have found, me too, you know, going in and out, in and out, back and forth, that it's a, a wonderful aid and help to devote some time each day to just sit quietly and be with yourself. One of the feelings that I'm experiencing, if it's a feeling, is gratitude for this experience and gratitude that there are people who are interested in this because an opportunity was created for me to learn important things and the part of me that needs to be of service understands now that when I attend to those parts of me that I used to feel maybe were a little selfish or Mm -hmm. self-indulgent that is being of service Mm -hmm. and I understand the importance of that 
You know, if you can become a bit more of a sane, humane human being, isn't that a contribution to other people? We put our signature on everything we do all day long. I must have missed something about daily life. I mean, I was trying to, you know, it's a kind of a tradition here to talk about that in the last meeting. And there are all these subjects that we try to, it's like an inventory of it. Typical problem areas. Many of us have heard this talk many times. Yeah. My mind works in dichotomies. One sense, the idea is to let things go, to let things happen, let things unfold, but the world is about making things happen, producing results. Yes. Yeah. uh, This practice comes from the work of the Buddha. I mean, in other words, the originator of what we're doing. I didn't make this up. Or we'd be in big trouble. <laughs> uh, so obviously he must have been an exponent of this, right? And in 40 odd years, you know, walking back and forth from one end of India to the other, talking to anyone who would listen from every caste and etc., uh, got a movement going which is still alive 2,500 years. Isn't that action? Where's the dichotomy? You see, the being in the moment doesn't mean that you don't do anything in the moment. It should help you to be more effective. It's skill in action. Yoga means skill in action. It means that you're attuned to the situation and to how you are in that situation. And so that the action that, that comes has a better chance of being appropriate, of being compassionate, of being intelligent. Whereas when we're dull and asleep, We're not seeing what the situation is, who the other person is, the implications of what we're doing, and we create enormous havoc. So there's really not a dichotomy. I know why you experience it, and some of it is an artifact of we come here to do meditation, now we're going out, in, out, in. There's no outer in. There's just our life from moment to moment. And there's sounds and sights and thoughts and bodily sensations and smells and we're either attentive to them or that we're not. Now, this place is organized to try and help us do that well. But it's a training ground. You know, it's a hospital, and now we've all gotten released. So you have, we're off. You can get in your cars and go away now. Some of us inmates have to stay here. We didn't get it, so we have to stay here longer. <laughs> we have time for one more observation or question if there is anything sure I just wanted to say that um, it seems the strategy of taking personal sort of retreat time and daily practice and whatnot is obviously critical as a starting point but that sharing this work and this practice is, is also very important um, I can't imagine any long term practice that doesn't include other either in this sort of setting or one that we can create for ourselves. Mm-hmm. With increasing awareness in a world that is deliberately self-destructing, apparently, or seems to be, mm-hmm. the discouragement and pain um, that one becomes aware of inevitably, not just by looking at ourselves, but by having to meet that world um, regularly, it just... There's, there's a version of self-reliance 
that includes some connections in the community and I'm not sure what yes. else to say. Yes. Okay. Um, I agree with what you're saying, but don't harden it into a, an absolute principle, is my suggestion, for the following reason. There's an enormous amount that could be learned by being alone. And I'll just give you two examples, and then... It's not either or. For example, when I, I spent some time in Japan and Korea, in the Zen tradition, and when I was in Korea, I visited two hermits. Uh, both were living in the mountains, very difficult to get to, and were, in their own way, strangely well-known. For You know, they were hermits, but they were well-known. They were. They lived in caves and had very primitive utensils, etc. And I spent the better part of a day with one and then longer, a few days, with another. One, I felt, was just a, a neurotic. <laughs> he was just... He was having such a hard time with people and with jobs and all the rest of it that it was good that he got out of everyone's hair and they out of his hair and that he went to his cave. And he wasn't having such a great time. And I was relieved to get out of there. The other man didn't even know how old he was anymore. And he didn't know how many years he had been there. And he just radiated this incredible joy and love and was so human and answered, I asked him all kinds of questions. And there's something that he learned by spending a lot of time alone that was invaluable for me, which is not to say that I should be alone. Okay, another example, much more humble. Much. A couple of years ago, I did a three-month retreat here as a yogi. And all of the yogis were meeting together before the retreat started and talking to each other. And my intention was to stay in my room the whole time. I mean, to come out to eat, of course, and maybe take some walks, which is what I did. And someone asked, you know, we started talking and I made that statement. And the person with me couldn't understand that. He said, why in the world would you want to spend three months all by yourself in a room? And he was just pu- puzzling. I said, well, what would that what kinds of feelings did that bring up for you, you know, to, to do that? I said, oh, well, boredom, loneliness, fear. So I said, exactly. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Okay, it doesn't mean you stay there. Then, see, there's certain things that you learn by being cut off from support, reassurance. You know what I mean? Okay. Could we have a moment of silence and just finish the retreat off with... Oh, encouragement to all of us to keep doing this or whatever other congenial approach you're taking to become a sane, healthy human being. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.